Are you someone who enjoys a good glass of wine but is never sure just what to get? Indulge your inner enophile and take the guesswork out of wine by signing up for the National Review Wine Club. All of our wines are selected by a team with more than 150 years of collective experience buying, judging, and making wine. We weed through the thousands of wines out there to select the very best of the best and deliver it straight to your door, all at an unbeatable price. Not only that, the Wine Club is also a great way to support our valuable conservative journalism here at National Review. A portion of every order goes to helping us grow our team and editorial impact. And there's no time better than today. Our introductory special delivers four of our hand-selected wines straight to your door, for only $29.99. So head over to nationalreviewwineclub.com today and get ready to kick back with an exquisite bottle of wine in the comfort of your own home. The long-awaited border deal is finally revealed, and Biden launches his long-awaited retaliatory strikes. We'll discuss all this more on the special long-awaited edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by Noah, Noah Rothman, Philip, Phil Klein, and the sage of authenticity, Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are the How the World Works podcast and ExpressVPN. More about both of them. In due course, if for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim Garrity, I think pretty much over the last month, every week has been the week when the border deal was going to be revealed, and it never was revealed. But then we got word Sunday morning the deal is going to be released sometime today, and indeed, it was. It is not met with a rapturous reception on the right, which was kind of predictable once uh, Trump had turned against this deal. And then there are the actual merits of the deal. And the headline provision is that the president will get this emergency shutdown authority at the border, which he can use at his discretion if over a seven-day period, there are an average of 4,000 illegal crossings at the border, and he has to if over a seven-day period there are 5,000 crossings a day or 8,500 on any given day. Of course, we've been exceeding these numbers routinely now the last several months, and Joe Biden said about a week ago, I need this bill so I can immediately shut down the border. What do you make of it? I think the aspect of it that surprises me the most is Senator Lankford of Oklahoma, who's been one of the chief negotiators for Republicans, so misjudging the mood amongst House Republicans. And, and yeah, maybe some of this stems from Trump and the idea that Trump would rather have the issue to run on. But uh, we kept getting dribs and drabs of leaks and hints and suggestions of what was in there. And very little of what we were hearing you know, generated any degree of enthusiasm uh, amongst those who wanted a much more secure border, wanted less abuse of the asylum process, and wanted um, the waves of migrants that keep being, you know, coming across the border and getting bussed out to various other cities across the country. We wanted that process to stop. And there was very, I mean, like, it's not, this is entirely a terrible bill. 
But if you were looking for an excuse to vote no, you could find it. Our Andy McCarthy has written a great deal on this. Mark Kerkorian wrote in the corner. Um, you know, uh, there's a House editorial on this saying no. There's just, you know, there's just so much net downside in this for very sparse upside. Uh, I think most notably something that jumped out at me was the, you know, and discussing with Hugh Hewitt earlier this week, the lack of border funding, border fencing funding. Like that struck me as a, as a no brainer as a sort of thing. Republicans always love and a very easy deal sweetener. It's authorization for, I want to say something like 500 million or something like that over a course of five years. Um, really much, much less than is, that is needed. The one upside, uh, the border patrol union said that they endorsed it, which I think is, you know, if there was any chance that was going to be one of the things that had it. Um, I look at it and I, I, I don't see enough to get me to yes. The only thing I would note, though, is I really don't like this philosophy of this bill stinks. We're going to pass our own bill a year from now because you don't know if President Trump is going to be the president starting January 20th, 2025. You don't know what the balance of the Senate's going to be, but it's probably going to be close either way. It's very hard to see. Republicans won't have a filibuster-proof majority, and it'll probably be 51-49 either way, maybe 52-48. Uh, and then, you know, Republicans have 218 seats in the House right now. Probably they keep control of the House next year, but I don't think it's a guarantee. So the idea of, ah, we're going to turn this down and we'll, we'll get a second bite at the apple a year from now, you may not have better leverage a year from now. And I just hope Republicans keep that in mind. So no, th this is uh, at least implicitly part of your case for the deal, which I do not think is is unreasonable. So I'll give I'll give you that. No, it's not unreasonable. Oh. Which is that this is <laughs> I'll a, take it. This is a compromise. You know, you have a Democrat in the White House from the perspective of I don't know, like three months ago, it would have been shocking how much they've they've uh, uh, given at least superficially on this bill. And clearly, the word has gone out that this is a major vulnerability for Joe Biden, and he needs to do something about it. I was watching this clip on X just before we were recording of, of the Reverend Al saying we have this invasion at the southern border and can't we put some pressure on Republicans that, to, to do something to stop this? So you have this weird uh, um, dynamic where, again, I, I'm against the bill on the, the merits, uh, but a, a Vox headline was Democrats want to pass right wing border bill and Republicans won't let them. Yeah, so, I mean, opinions have been baked about this bill for weeks long before it came out. So it was kind of uh, not unforeseeable that you would see the kind of reaction that you're seeing, both from Democrats and Doves, who are very against enforcing immigration law. They don't like to enforce immigration law, uh, who are objecting to this, and Republicans who are rending garments saying this is the worst thing to come out of Congress, it's the Alien Sedition Act, it's as imperious as the Volstead Act, it's all nonsense. But it's, it's, it's necessary to really gin up enthusiasm for this thing. One thing I saw, two, two reasons why I think this is a valuable compromise, politics and policy. On the policy side, I saw uh, Senator Barrasso say, we don't need new laws. Really? Then why are we talking about H.R. 2? H.R. 2 is supposed to be the sine qua non of, a, of an immigration deal. We don't need it, so why are we even talking about it? We're talking about it because, of course, we need new laws. It's very valuable to boost detention capacity by 50%, to tighten fear, credible fear standards for asylum seekers, to boost not just judges, but judges' teams, to beat back some of this obscene backlog, monitoring curfews and deportation flights that unlock this money to the tune of something like 1500 and so on and so on. The policy is necessary, and the policy is valuable for the politics of it. As we said last week, there's no amnesty in this bill. There's no pathway to citizenship. There's no green cards for illegal residents. It's an enforcement bill. And the fact that you got an enforcement bill out of Democrats 
is because Democrats want to be forced to enforce the law. They don't want to enforce immigration law. They're begging Republicans to save them from the quicksand they've parked themselves in because they're over a barrel. And so what do Republicans do when they have Democrats over a barrel? They're giving them an out. It's shocking. It's like watching McClellan at Antietam. You've got him on the ropes and then you just let him go. Why? It doesn't make any sense to me that they're not even talking about an amendment process. They're not even talking about going back to the drawing board. They're talking about pushing this off until after the election because the politics of it just aren't amenable to a Republican party that has convinced itself Democrats will cease to exist on January 20th, 2025. It's, it's, it, it is incomprehensible unless you think that Democrats are, are laying some sort of a bizarre trap for Republicans that they'll get an out here that they will manage to convince the public that Joe Biden's border crisis isn't his border crisis. And he'll retail this narrative that, oh, this law passed and now Republicans take ownership of some of this stuff. Well, that's, that's bizarre. Uh, Joe Biden has presided over a, a, a unique set of circumstances on the border that I don't think anybody would retroactively apply to Donald Trump. And even if they did, you've got now this mechanism in your hands that says, look, we did our part and the president is still not enforcing the law. That doesn't help him at all. I'm, I'm very unpersuaded by the arguments against this thing, save for the fact that it's a compromise and compromises require compromise of everybody. And if you think the perfect deal, quote unquote, attributable to Donald Trump is somewhere out there on the horizon, then you don't have to compromise at all. But that's not how this country works. We do things incrementally or we don't do them at all. Or we do them by executive order and then they're reversed by the next president. So yeah, I find all the arguments unconvincing. Yeah, you make good points. I just to fill <clears throat> the, the basic codification of a, a high level of flow of illegal immigrants and the supporters of the bill say, no, that's not what it is. Because yeah, sure, you, you need 5,000 a day to get the shutdown authority, which is supposed to be what the, what the United States government is doing in the first place. We're supposed to be excluding and detaining illegal immigrants. And, and we've just over the last... 30 years worked ourselves into this well, I, bizarre just to say, place. Where, I don't yeah. want to interrupt you, Rich, and I apologize, but just to say it's not uh, inconceivable to ob object to that argument. I object to that as well, the notion that you, you're essentially just allowing 4,000 in here. But you're not really. These these people would be detained and processed. It's not like they're just right. being yeah, let into, the, into the country if the statute was adhered to. Yeah, so so they so they say yeah you're you're not just letting letting them in, but still you know why not give them the shutdown authority right now without any triggers and limits? What? Why would you have a trigger to exclude bogus asylum seekers from the over? I'm sorry, this, yeah, if Republicans were negotiating against themselves, then they'd have that. They're no, negotiating against a party that does not want to enforce the law. Yeah, so, sorry, what, what's, what, what's the point? They're negotiating against a, a set of, a, a negotiating partner that has no interest in enforcing the law and wants to be forced to do it. That you can say that's uh, an argument against law. Period. Yeah, I, I would just if if I were the House, I would just say this is our counteroffer. You get this Title Forty Two style shutdown authority right now, without triggers and without limits. That's another bizarre thing about the the shutdown authority is one it has to be triggered by a very high level of legal immigration, a level that would have been unimaginable almost, you know, from from the perspective of the Obama administration, and is is limited. So the the limit initially. In terms of days, I think it's like 255 days. That's not it. That's not much of a limit the first year, but that, but then it comes down and and it goes away in the third year. So clearly, they don't want Donald Trump, if he's elected, to have this, which is also a bizarre 
uh, thing. And and then the idea that we're going to set up this whole kind of new uh, asylum process in 90 days, um, where you're we're giving these asylum officers who had a huge role in creating the crisis in the first place, because the way they interpret credible credible fear is preposterous. And, and they're basically kind of pro-migrant type of people in, in these jobs. Are you going to give them even more authority outside of the immigration courts? And, and this whole thing is going to work. It, it would immediately get overwhelmed as well. So, I mean, the answer is you got to exclude them uh, in the first place. So give, give the president Title 42, clear, unmistakable authority to exclude these people and just make that the offer. And if Biden rejects it, then he's the one rejecting uh, new laws that would help help the situation. But Phil, where where are you on the law and the politics? I mean, I think that the in terms of the law, the the real issue that it hinges on is does this make things better, um, or in the long run does it make things worse? And it seems like that's really where the ar- argument is because if when there's divided government, you're going to make some sort of compromises. You don't want to compromise on starting a new spending program that is going to continue to spend money um, in another administration. But if you get a tax cut, and it's maybe not as big of a tax cut as you would have wanted, but it's still lower taxes, you might be inclined to support it. So I think the question is, if operatively, even if we say Biden could shut down the border tomorrow if he wanted to without Congress, if this would force him to actually th- shut down the border and kind of force his hand, because um, I think over the past several months, pretty much every day, every week, we would have hit this threshold that's in the in the law. Um, I think that's a strong argument to say this is the best we could get now. It'll improve the situation. But if the question is sort of um, there's a Republican president or Trump, you know, two years from now, um, and he wants to deal with the border and there are only 3,500 or 4,999 crossings, um, so he can't do it. Um, and it basically like says without Congress, you can't do anything to, to stop illegal border crossings. Um, and if it kind of codifies that and sets that sort of standard that you need to go to Congress every time you want to prevent illegal border crossings, which should be the case at all. Um, then I think that, um, it, it argues stronger to, to, um, Andy's point that it's just sort of a trap that, that like it's sort of to, to get Biden to do what he should be doing anyway. Um, we give up some something longer term in terms of the politics. I think what I find bizarre from the Republican perspective is that their current conservative position is there doesn't need to be a new law because Biden could just shut it down when he w- wants it. But if you flash back a few months, a lot of Republicans, including people like Ted Cruz, who's been, who's a, a hawk on Russia generally, said, well, we can't fund more Ukraine until we do something about the border and pass border legislation. So there has to be border security in this, in this bill. So you know that any bill that's going to go through a Democratic Senate and signed by Biden is not going to be, you know, the bill that we dream up. So it now looks bizarre 
to just come around and say for these same people who said we need a, a bill to get Ukraine funding to say, well, we didn't need a bill in the first place and it's all up to Biden. So now you create a scenario where instead of running the whole year on Biden doesn't want to do anything about the border, Biden gets to say, look, I was ready to shut down the border. They wouldn't give me the authority. Even if we say that that is a bogus argument, that he didn't really need this bill, it basically gives him some sort of, you know, branch to sort of cling on to um, at a time when he like he shouldn't have any any argument to cling on to, given his failure to to control the border. Yeah, so it's, it's certainly the, the best argument he's had about the border during his entire presidency, and if nothing else, has divided Republicans, at least for the time being. I mean, you, you have Republicans lodging these really harsh criticisms of, of one another, you know, Mitt Romney, I don't know whether Langford's quite gone this far, but certainly Romney has, is, you know, they're, they're just lickspittle loyalists to uh, Donald Trump who don't want to get anything done or help help this terrible crisis at the border. And then you have others, you know, uh, Josh Hawley and uh, Mike, Mike Lee, uh, you know, I hate to say, saying, oh, this this is the uniparty, you know, that just cares about endless wars and our, our own side has been sucked in to this, uh, um, th- this democratic spin about what they want to do at the border. But Jim, obviously a, a huge part of this is just, just the bad faith of, um, of, of Biden. You know, it's not as though he um, has been doing everything he can at the border, right? To He wanted to keep remain in Mexico, but the courts wouldn't let him. He, he wanted to keep the amnesty, uh, the safe th- third country agreements with the Northern Triangle countries, but they, they pulled out. And, uh, you know, he, he's been working interior deportations the best he can. He's destroyed everything and ignored everything. And now all of a sudden, without even like any a, you know, further attempt at the border, it's not as like he's been trying the last several months and then's coming to Congress in desperation for new authority. It's this whiplash, 180-degree uh, turn, where after destroying the whole thing and just trying to make easier ways for illegal immigrants to come in, all of a sudden, he wants to shut down the border and it's the responsibility of Republicans to to give them that authority. Yeah, look, this there are a lot of ways we can argue that President Joe Biden is a really bad president and that for all of his experience, for all of his uh, knowledge of the ways of Washington, it's kind of fascinating how often Biden steps deep into poop and he, you know, everybody else could see and could avoid. Uh, the, I, this, you know, did not suddenly, the, the immigration issue, illegal immigration and the border did not suddenly appear as a problem for the Biden administration. This is really from the opening months of this presidency. And you could see this becoming a bigger and bigger issue in each, in the polling month by month, year by year. So a smarter president would have said, wow, even if I am effectively an open borders type, and by the way, what we have at the border, it's not technically open borders, but I think in a lot of people's minds, it's close enough. Uh, that it's frightening enough to have um, so many gotaways and so many people with s- asylum claims that I think a lot of people, like they can't all be legitimate asylum. And I, I'm one of those folks who believes that like asylum is for when the U.S. government, like if I go back to my home country, my government's going to kill me. Not, there are a lot of gangs in my neighborhood and I don't right. feel safe. That's what it's you supposed know? to be. Um, and the idea that like, you know, for, you know, we, we're giving people court dates in the year 2035 and it just this ludicrous system 
Like if you say to somebody, look, you can stay here for the next decade, that's effectively open borders. That is, you know, you don't that that is, you know, close enough to most people's conventional definition of you just come across the border, you say you're seeking asylum, and you can stay for as long as you want. Um what we have, you know, and so a, a smarter president would have said, wow, I have a real problem on this and I have a real liability for my re-election term. I'd better do some stuff to show Republicans that I'm serious about it before I go to them with this massive deal and say, you have no choice but to give this to me. I, the guy who have screwed this up from day one, you have to give me more power and hope for the best. Lo and behold, Republicans don't have any faith that even if they gave Biden this power, he would effectively use it. Because deep down, I think they think he doesn't really want immigration enforcement. And his party as a whole doesn't really, they did not want immigration enforcement until it literally was bust to their front door and became a problem for big city mayors. So, no, we've talked about this a little bit in a prior app, but what's your, so let's assume the border deal is, is going down, which I think we all assume, and it is indeed happening. As Phil pointed out, the original idea here was you give Republicans what they want on the border, and then you get them to swallow Ukraine funding, which a, a lot of them aren't enthusiastic about. If the border deal is not going to happen, what's what's your prognosis for Ukraine funding? I think the prognosis for all of it is is really grim. As Phil said, it needs to be repeated, this was the GOP's idea. They wanted to couple these issues to help them swallow a big, tough pill. And now they're saying, well, we can't, we can't vote on this. You couple these issues. What? You did this. This is what you wanted. I mean, I, as much as Democrats are being duplicitous on a lot of this stuff, that's not wrong. That's true. And no, I don't think there's any forward. Nobody's talking about amendments. Nobody's even offering uh, the uh, the idea that you can come up for a vote and we can go back to committee and you can reconcile these two bills between the two chambers. Nobody's even talking about that. They're just saying dead on arrival. Everybody wants to push this off on the Republican side. It seems like they want to push this off to November and Democrats see this as a win-win. If they were compelled to enforce the law by the Congress, Joe Biden could go to the open borders constituencies. His party has cultivated and say, listen, Congress made me do this. If they don't, he's going to spend the rest of the uh, campaign saying, look, Republicans had the opportunity to you know, do something on the border and they just wouldn't do it. My hands are tied. That's totally disingenuous. But there will be several tens, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars behind that message. And it will be repeated and it will be incepted into the minds of swing voters and Democratic voters, which will induce the coming home effect that Joe Biden is depending on. So I think this is really bad politics on the part of Republicans. And I see no hope for Ukraine funding. And by the way, the Ukraine war is going in the wrong direction. That's also something that Joe Biden needs, but it's also something that America needs. There's no hope for funding for, uh, and, and there is also Joe Biden saying now that he's not, he's not going to uh, accept uh, standalone uh, support for Israel's war against Hamas. He would veto it. And I think uh, you know, Phil has more to say on this, but I don't think it would come up for, he's right, it probably wouldn't come up for a vote that would save Joe Biden the uh, bad optics of having to veto something like that. But it just demonstrates the intractability of all these necessary provisions. As I wrote in my piece on this, if you went back to 2004 and you told Republicans that Democrats had consented to giving up on all amnesty provisions and they were committed to funding all our allies and partners who are fighting our enemies for us, you would say Republicans have won all the arguments. And yet it's Republicans who are saying no to all this. Uh, it's baffling. So Phil, that's a segue to the exit question. Who will win the politics of the border deal, the White House or congressional Republicans? 
I think in the short term, the White House, but in in the long term, I mean, in October, if uh, the border is still, I mean, which no reason to assume it wouldn't, but assuming the border is still a disaster in October, I don't think that Biden will get um, anywhere by saying, well, I could have had it shut down, but back in February, Republicans rejected a bill that would have done that. Um, so, Jim, we got it. We got a short, short-term White House, long-term Republican answer on the board. Uh, before I jump into my answer, I just want to observe when Noah says, "Oh, could you imagine this being offered in 2004?" Well, lots changed since then. Uh, maybe back in 2004, you had a bunch of guys hanging around outside your Home Depot as a sign of illegal immigration in this country. Back in 2004, we didn't have busloads of them constantly going to these countries. And you didn't have, you know, folks like the mayors of New York City and Edison, New Jersey, and all these places saying, oh, we're all full, we're out of room. You know, we didn't have D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser saying, you know, ah, you know, we just don't have the resources for this. We're not a border community. Like El Paso is just a wash in extra resources to deal with this. Like, like why, why are Democrats moving a lot from here, from now, compared to 2004? Because the problem got a lot worse. That, you know, that's what did it. So um, it's, been the red, it's been the red pilling of Jim Garrity. Well, uh, yeah, of course, uh, uh, under their watch, they're begging Republicans to rescue them from the consequences of their own policies. Why wouldn't Republicans take advantage of that? Because the solution is not equal to the, the scale of the problem. Uh, you know, like, how about some more border funding? That, is that really being that unreasonable? So, anyway, Rich, what was the question? <laughs> so who's going to win the short-term politics? Uh, not short-term. Who's going to win the politics of the border deal, the White House or congressional Republicans? Phil said short, short-term White House, long-term Republicans. Uh, uh, congressional Republicans, uh, because I think most people think this is Biden's job to begin with. Yeah, he'll get to spin and he'll get to point, you know, say, you know, these guys are playing politics with this stuff. But I mean, look, Biden's argument, for example, is that a standalone bill on Israel is playing politics. No, that's just you know trying to pass something that's got to get passed. Oh, by the way, does anybody want to get, you know, arms sales to Taiwan in there? We want to restock Iron Dome in Israel. Never, you know, how about all that Ukraine? Like, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff this was supposed to help get through. And it isn't. And I have no idea when any of that stuff is going to get through. No. It's not not happening. Not happening in an election year. None of it. <clears throat> who, who wins politics? Oh, um, I, honestly, I'm, I'm torn on that one. Um, I think if things start to go really bad in Ukraine and they're starting to go really bad in Ukraine, uh, that there's a, there's a lot of opportunities for Joe Biden to say, look, Republicans fumbled the ball here. And whether that's fair is subject to debate. I think it's probably not. Um, but I, uh, given the amount of money that will be up behind that message, I think that Democrats will ultimately win the argument. I think the White House wins the argument over the border deal. It's the argument they've been trying to make for a long time. This is what basically on day one, they're like, oh, Trump messed this up, e- even though the border was secure and they destroyed it. And they've been saying it and saying it for three years, totally unconvincingly. Now they have something they can actually point to that that uh, arguably would help the situation and Republicans are opposed to still outside of the border deal. The border deal is not the entirety of border politics, and that's just a loser for the White House. I mean, they, they did this. No one forced them to do it. They created the chaos. The chaos happening on their watch, and he will continue to get uh, creamed by Donald Trump 
on this broader issue. With that, let's go to our first sponsor as listeners of National Review Podcast. You already have all the riveting political commentary and news analysis you need, but good news. There's a new podcast featuring author, commentator, and our old friend Kevin Williamson offering a fresh perspective on something we all do work to make a living. That's right. Kevin has teamed up with the Competitive Enterprise Institute to make a new show called How the World Works. And instead of trying to unravel the mysteries of the universe, it's a look at how the world actually works. Each episode, Kevin has an intimate conversation with a notable guest where they discuss the jobs they've had, why work matters, the role of work in our economy and social lives, and policy ideas for helping workers. After all, work involves a lot more than hours put in and paychecks cash. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit ci.org slash podcast to find the latest episodes of the show. So Noah, back to you. We finally got these retaliatory strikes. I think they are pretty much what we predicted an ep or two ago would happen. They would not hit Iran directly. They would limit themselves to these various malicious sites. And it was much broader than uh, the previous strikes, but really doesn't offer much hope for ending this uh, ending this uh, cycle of tit for tat attacks. What do you make of it? Well, as much as I'd like to credit our powers of prognostication, we were able to assess what the contours of these strikes would look like because the White House was telling us exactly what they would look like on the on the hour. They were telling us when it would occur, basically where they would occur, basically the conditions that would precipitate them, and to the degree to which that. Uh, in concert with the pressure that's been put on Syrian sites from the IDF, which has been engaged in strikes on Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps affiliated sites in Syria. All the Iranian personnel that we probably wanted to send a message to in the form of a, of a white hot explosion left. So what are we, what were we going to convey with these strikes save our absolute desperate reluctance to do anything that would be seen as provocative in Tehran? And that's not going to arrest this tempo of operations that we've been dealing with since the October 7th massacre. Yes, the scope and scale of these strikes was bigger than what we had seen before, but it's not the first time the administration had authorized retaliatory responses to Iran's Shiite militias in the region, and it had no effect on their behavior. Likewise, the Houthis, another Iran-aligned militia group, uh, and we've been doing these retaliatory strikes, these uh, very calibrated responses to uh, basically where the origins of the attacks come from, but and they're degrading their capabilities. We shouldn't say that they have absolutely no effect. They don't. But they haven't done anything to uh, uh, affect the will, denude the will of Iran and its proxies to test the parameters of action and engage in provocative behavior. And they killed three Americans. We had this report yesterday in Politico, which is shocking insofar as they think that we would believe it. But it, dem it said that Joe Biden didn't give a speech to the American people about a very risky military operation designed to uh, restore deterrence in the region to pacify Iran in response to the death of three Americans because he was afraid that the speech would be seen in Tehran as escalatory. That's insane. That's an insane proposition. If we took it at face value... It would mean that he thinks that nations commit themselves to courses as risky as the possibility of direct conflict, existential conflict with a great power based on speeches. That's nonsense. And it's hard to believe given, in, given that it dovetails with Joe Biden's very low profile. 
So yes, we're going to, and have seen since these strikes, the continuation of this campaign attacking and harassing American positions in Iraq and Syria. We've seen the Houthis not back down. We've seen no changes to their behavior. And the administration says, well, this is probably going to be it. It's not this really sustained campaign because then we'd have to go to Congress. They're not serious. They're not serious about any of this. Joe Biden is willing to absorb all these attacks on Americans up to and including the deaths of Americans. And we will continue to see that until his resolve somehow manifests. So, Phil, if that story is is true about the reason they didn't give the speech, it just goes to what we've, we've talked about before. They fear... Iran. And, and this was the same, same uh, dynamic that held in Ukraine and probably made us miss the golden hour, which was the first year of the war, where we really should have been giving Ukraine everything they, they asked for in the hopes they could really push the Russians all the way back. But we didn't do it because we were afraid of, of what Russia would do to us. So uh, deterrence is very much in play here. But what's happening is the administration is letting itself get deterred by our adversaries. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the criticism of Biden being Obama's third term is um, no more apt than when it comes to Iran policy. Uh, because if you look at the Obama administration, they had this view of never wanting to counter Iranian belligerents, always wanting to sort of downplay the threat to Iran, um, all in the service of chasing this nuclear diplomacy and all based on the distorted idea that um, if you confront Iran, that it'll embolden the um, hardliners and the mythical moderates are going to take over if you somehow show um, more restraint. Um, And that was a disaster under Obama. Um, And it's been an we've had a return to it under Biden. And it's pretty clear for months that Iran has no fear to have its proxies attack and harass U.S. ships and shipping um, and basically do what it wants. And all Biden's going to do is is just go on very sort of targeted strikes that uh, telegraph in advance that we are doing this just to send a message, but not we're not going to do anything major that's going to risk an escalation. Um, so you sort of telegraph that we're not serious. So Iran doesn't take it seriously. Um, they killed three Americans, and the response is we're not we're going to give enough notice so that they could get all their personnel out in time and so we don't have to kill anyone um it's it's completely ridiculous and it's it's not going to end there this this is not going to be an actual deterrent um you have to do something much more significant like the Suleimani strike if you want to actually restore deterrence yeah, the brilliance of the Soleimani strike, Jim, was that it wasn't like a major act of war, right? I mean, it wasn't like an armored division marching on Tehran. Is one guy, an important guy, take, taken out by one missile from one drone. But it sent that message <laughs> that, uh, you know, if you can do it to him, you can do it to anyone. And, and people all around the world were, were scared by it. So Biden just... D- has shown no sign of having that kind of metal. And then I'll just throw one other thing at, at you and let, let you go. 
one thing that I, I've considered remarkable about the last week or so, Americans were killed. And you still have had people on the isolationist right saying, oh, no, no, let's, let's not hit back. Let's not get sucked into these forever wars. You know, this is so I think the, the argument against Ukraine is ridiculous because we're just providing them money. Right. We're in weapons. We're not fighting ourselves. So as if, if this is an endless war, it's a relatively cheap one for us. And they're degrading one of our adversaries. But they've been making that argument about that. And then but to do this, you know, where I, the, the best sort of isolationism, in my view, is kind of a Jacksonian isolationism where your blood is really up when someone hits you. And that's that's the circumstance when you're willing to hit back. But we've we've had folks on, on the right um, exhibiting a, a dovishness even in this circumstance. Jeannie Herpatrick said of the Democrats, they always blame America first. There are apparently some folks on the right who genuinely believe that we become warmongers the moment we hit back. And that when, you know, they shoot at U.S. Navy ships in the Red Sea, when they kill Americans in, in Jordan, you know, we're, we're the bad guys if we dare retaliate to that. Uh, overall, though, I, I, I concur with pretty much everything Noah said. I'm just going to add that, like, the Biden administration's uh, philosophy regarding this very serious confrontation with Iran through its proxies is basically inspired by faulty towers don't bring up the war if we don't tell Americans that we, mm -hmm. the, the whole thing, well, if we have a televised message from the Oval Office, that's going to sound like we're at war with Iran. Well, they're killing our guys through proxies and we're killing their guys through proxies. Now, what do you want to call it? You don't have to call it war, but you got to acknowledge we're in the neighborhood of war, right? We, we are now in the, we're in the uh, zip code of military conflict, generally through the use of proxies. Um, I, I note, by the way, Again, I agree with everything Noah said. I think we, we can also say that it, deep down, uh, the the no Oval Office address, no major address to the country about this conflict with Iranian proxies, um, it's not the explanation of, oh, we don't want to be too warmongering. That, that's what they're trotting out there to Politico. The more accurate answer is that Biden can't do these things anymore because Biden, for the second, I don't want to preview our next uh, uh, topic on today's uh, show, but it's going to observe, for the second straight year, Joe Biden is not doing an interview before this, the Super Bowl. Now, this is a tradition going back to Reagan. I want to say it was, you know, 85 and the Patriots and the Bears. And, uh, you know, it's a, a huge audience. Why would Any the president not want to do that game, Jim? Oh, I'm sorry? Any analysis of that game? Yeah, that 40, 46 to 10. It was absolutely ludicrous that Walter Payton didn't get to score a touchdown. I love French <laughs> Perry, but running him in, I don't know, yeah, I can go on, I can go on a great length with that one. Um, no, but like, the, you know, like why would the president not want to address the country and the answer is that Joe Biden doesn't do sit-down interviews anymore. His staff doesn't trust him. They don't trust him when he has to go off the uh, the teleprompter and he has to ad lib. He'll speaking off the cuff. He'll say something stupid. He'll create another you know controversy for the next couple of days. He referred to Francois Mitterrand of Germany a couple of days ago. So I <laughs> think part of this is Biden just can't communicate. Period. Much less communicate effectively about the stakes of this Middle East conflict, and much less having any particular plan of just hoping that the mullahs chill out and decide they've picked on us enough that they've, you know, uh, that they've, they, they've done what they wanted to do and hopefully things will calm down or at minimum we can get the American people to stop thinking about that. Hey, did you know Taylor Swift's going to be at the Super Bowl? <laughs> Excellent question to you first, Phil, a, a key thing undermining Biden's presidency. And we'll talk about this in the next segment as Jim alluded to in more detail when we get to this NBC poll. But the key thing is just the sense of weakness, which has been there since the uh, Afghan withdrawal. So that's a question. Biden will do something, whatever it is, not necessarily to convince people he's a strong leader again, because it's probably impossible, but something to kind of take 
the edge off this sense that he's a diminished and weak president, whether it's against Iran, whether it's at the border, whether it's something else. I don't think he'll do anything major. He'll try to do things and spin it as him being tough, but I don't think that they actually will in reality. Jim. So going back to the first moments of the Biden presidency, this has been an administration that loves to spike the football at the first sign of anything going right. And then it's just this volcano of excuses when things go wrong. Um, I, I remind you, that was Jake Sullivan who had written like a, you know, a week or two before the October 7th attacks, the Middle East is quieter than it's been in decades. Well, now the Middle East is louder and noisier than it's been in decades. They always want to believe that everything's going great. They always want to downplay or ignore the problems. And they have a vastly overstated uh, sense of their own effectiveness on the world stage. So, um, so yeah, that, that fits with your, your description of Biden, is that this is almost this frantic flailing, look, we're not as weak as we look. And you know every small victory will be touted as something as big as the Bears winning 46 to 10 over the New England Patriots. <laughs> Noah. So Rich, you reminded me of the when you were just uh, talking about the Biden administration and Joe Biden in particular, his um, approach to this sort of thing reminded me of this old Cold War concept of self-deterrence. So self-deterrence is really applies to nuclear warfare. If you Essentially, it's you hit all, all your forces and then you say, okay, we're going to hit your value targets. We're going to hit your cities. So you don't have enough forces to retaliate. So what are you going to do? You're going to wait for the second strike. You're going to surrender. And you surrender. So it's a rational response, but it's your deterrence. You're self-deterred. It's a psychological condition. And this administration is self-deterred. It has convinced itself that the response to whatever it does will, will outweigh the benefits associated with its efforts to restore deterrence, to restore sobriety and stability to the region. So we might see a couple of more pinpricks couple of more really highly calibrated strikes uh, in response, direct response to aggression against us. But we will not see anything that approaches an effort to, to really restore deterrence by shaking up the adversary and convincing them of an existential threat associated with getting into a war with the United States. Joe Biden is more afraid of them than they are of us. Yeah, the answer is no. He's just not capable of it. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor. This episode, ExpressVPN, doesn't make sense that the same company who controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? What about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries are, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between your online activity and these text juggernauts, and that's why you need ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address, something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, Tech Radar, and countless others. What you'll like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN you can trust to keep you safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash editors. That's E-X. 
P R E S S V P N dot com slash editors to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash editors right now to learn more. Please check it out. So we had Phil this extraordinary NBC news poll. I'm not a fan of Joe Biden's. So I've found uh, Every sentence in the write-up of this uh, of this poll, kind of delicious, and the Steve Kornacki uh, rundown on Meet the Press was was pretty awesome. To trailing Donald Trump by five points, uh, national polling has been. Um, you know, there's some polls where, where Biden's been ahead. A uh, Quinnipiac poll last week had Biden ahead by five points. Seemed like maybe that was a sign things were shifting. We've had other polls that show Trump. Still ahead, so it looks like the Quinnipiac poll was an outlier. But the NBC poll this is the worst re- result for Biden they've ever had in a matchup against Trump. And then the internals are just a total disaster. I mean, he's getting wiped out by Trump on every major issue. He's ahead on some issues like you know climate or uh, abortion or healthcare, kind of traditional uh, Republican deficiencies. But on the economy, he's losing by 20 points on the border, which we were just discussing, losing by 30 points. And this is a key thing on the question of who has a stamina and mental acuity to be president, only 23% of people think it's, it's Biden. So you can see how on the economy, especially, you know, they can make up th- that ground, the, the um, or take the edge off Trump's lead at, at the very least there, with the job market kind of roaring along now. But otherwise, this is just a uh, uh, a catastrophe of a, a a picture for an incumbent president. Yeah, and I think that one of the the numbers, which to me is is quite alarming for Biden, which isn't even the one that's been most uh, quoted. Is they ask, you know, what is your favorite? Do you, what's your opinion of uh, Biden? What's your opinion of Trump? And the, they were, if you look at the category of very negative, Biden's basically has as high intense negatives as Trump at this point. Trump was at 44 and Biden was at 43. And the reason I think that's significant is that. The hope that Biden and Democrats are clinging to is that, you know, Biden's basically boring. People don't really like him, but people are kind of neutral, whereas the intense hatred that people have for Trump is a huge motivator. But if at this point, the very negative views on both of them are essentially equal um, and neutralized, um, that's just a huge, huge red flag for Biden because he can't, that means that he can't just depend on negative partisanship to get him reelected. I mean, if you look at another, uh, polling number, it showed that they asked the people who said they vote for Biden is your, um, is your vote more for Biden or against Trump? And, the for Biden was only 31%, 62% said against Trump. So basically, by two to one margin, people are just trying to vote against Trump. Um, and just by comparison, if you go back to the NBC poll in 2004, Kerry was, you know, 37% were voting for him versus 47% of his voters were against Bush. So you're basically looking 
even in Kerry, who lost, had a lot more people voting for him in the positive sense than Biden. And yet Biden's negatives are now just as bad as Trump. So to me, that is, if this poll is accurate, um, and we're, again, we're not talking about some Republican pollster. This is NBC. They'd have a reason to like freak people out, you know, to, to rig it against Biden. Um, And I mean, it's just atrocious. Yeah. So Noah, one bright spot for Biden and the Democrats is the hypothetical polling on a Trump conviction. We've seen polling that just in, in the, the abstract, you know, people are asked, you know, are, are you going to still be with Trump if he's convicted? And, and you know, it's, it's like two to one against Trump. I mean, it's, it's disastrous. This one has Biden leading by two if Trump is convicted. But as Kornacki correctly noted, the end of his rundown and meet the press, polling hypotheticals just isn't very reliable, especially a big event like that. It, it's just hard. You need it to happen. And, and then you kind of see it's, it's, it's on. It's unpredictable, but I think it has to matter what the actual conviction is about. And it seems, we'll see, but the, the January 6th uh, case might have trouble getting off the, the starting blocks, um, you know, unless they want to do it in the fall, which w- would be a total uh, travesty in my view, which means that Alvin Bragg is up first. And it, it may be that, you know, getting convicted in uh, New York City for 20 year old payments to a porn star doesn't have the same uh, impact uh, as one of these other cases might. Yeah. I mean, if that is the way events unfold, you have to say that Donald Trump is the luckiest human being who's ever been born, that he would manage to pull <clears throat> pull that off to somewhat n- neutralize the effect that would occur if he were to be before a judge before for something that was far less a tortured review of, of uh, the jurisdiction of uh, the Manhattan DA than the Bragg case, and will probably end up helping Trump. Um, If there is a, and that is a bright spot, but like you, I'm skeptical of it because human beings are capable of uh, profound rationalizations and what they tell pollsters today may not be what they believe tomorrow. But if there is a, a real bright spot here for Democrats, and I don't really think it is, but you could squint and see it, is that Joe Biden's hemorrhaging support over the course of these NBC news polls NBC News polls from July 2023, 49% to January 24, 42% sliding the whole time. But Donald Trump is static. It's not that he's going up. He's pretty stable, 45, 46, 47 Mm -hmm. in this latest poll. And that just about dovetails with what he gets uh, in the popular vote. He got roughly a 46%, just shy of 47% in 2020. So that's, you could say, okay, well, that's his ceiling. And Joe Biden's got a lot more elasticity there. So maybe he'll like, rebound. But is he going to rebound by 10 points? I mean, I suppose it's possible. But it would take a lot of effort to repair the brand damage that he's done to himself over the course of his presidency. And his handlers seem totally disinclined to do that. As Jim said in an earlier segment, they're, they're very afraid of their candidate. They don't trust their candidate. And it comes through. Um, for whatever John, Donald Trump's faults are, the people around him are not afraid to let him let his freak flag fly. Let him say whatever he wants to say. In fact, if they could even control their candidate, which they probably can't, I don't think they'd be inclined to do so. That level of confidence translates. Um, and it communicates not just in Joe Biden's actions and his deeds, but obviously in how he's behaving, that he's just afraid of the world. He's afraid of the challenges that America is facing abroad. He's afraid of Republicans in Congress. He's afraid of voters. 
it's very hard to see how somebody who's who's that scared of his own shadow manages to emerge victorious and next November or this November. So Jan, th- th- this poll is, is one of the reasons some of our friends and you know, very, very smart and sophisticated people think that Biden could be switched out, you know, cause actually a rational party would not do this, right? <laughs> this is, this is not the guy, you know, he's, he's facing this supposed threat to democracy. They fear and hate so much. And this is the guy that is standing in the breach, you know, where, where's Michelle Obama, Michelle Obama, call your office. But I, I just think this is not going to happen. The way to switch by now would have been Pelosi, Schumer, Clyburn, all, all of them backing a primary challenge to, to Joe Biden. <laughs> that, that would have been the way to do it. Uh, they weren't going to do that. Obviously that would have been, you know, a, a massive and momentous, uh, step. So there's not going to be any secret plot to, to get him out, you know, unless he, you know, maybe he and Jill examine their consciences and, and realize this is a terrible thing they're doing to the country. But that, that doesn't seem, uh, that doesn't seem likely, but that'd be the only scenario, like a real health thing or Jill and Joe just all of a sudden making this decision. But there's no, there's not going to be any plot to, to get him out and then have an open convention, you know, that could nominate Kamala Harris. Who, who knows, you know, when they're staring down the, the, the barrel of a, a, of a Donald Trump, who just in terms of the national polling is more potent than he's ever been. He he never led in 2020. There's one Rasmussen poll nationally where he led in 2020 against against Biden. He was behind in every single other poll. There's a, a radio show I do regularly in New York, a host I love, and he always gives me credit. Rich, you called 2020 right, but it was easy, right? All he had to do was look at all, literally all the polling. In 2016, he was briefly ahead, you know, occasionally against Hillary. But the last two months, he was steadily behind. So he's never polled uh, this this well, and and they're going to have a, a, a chaotic, you know, something has never happened in modern politics convention, you know, in, in, in August or whatever it is. It's uh, not going to happen. I'm sorry, Rich. I'm just trying to imagine a scenario less likely than Jill and Joe Biden examine yeah, their sorry. <laughs> and choose to turn down another four years of living in the White House, of being a two-term president and all that stuff. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, something that, it's not just the NBC poll. I think something that jumped out at me was on MSNBC. Uh, it was a focus group of black male voters, and they were telling the network why Trump appeals to them. And one of them just had this very simple, basic statement, quote, we're broke with Biden. We weren't with Trump. With Trump, we had money, unquote. Boy, that's pretty simple. That's that's pretty straightforward there. And that's a very tough uh, dynamic to argue against. I, I think that, like, de- you know, Democrats should be nervous and they are nervous. I would note that that nervousness has yet to manifest as a preference for somebody else. And the second problem is not just you don't just need unity about it's time to get rid of Biden. You need unity on who the alternative is. I think it's very obvious. You look at that, that NBC poll, Kamala Harris's numbers are even worse. Uh, there's no estimation to think, oh, if we don't like our odds with Biden, let's just sub in Harris and that'll be fine. Um, and, and I noticed that, you know, Dean Phillips, who is pretty much the exact same agenda, philosophy, worldview, and policy priorities as Joe Biden, this little known Minnesota congressman, uh, you know, running for president in, in a, you know, what everybody kind of recognized was a long shot. I don't think we thought it was going to end up 96.6 to 1.6 in the <laughs> South Carolina Democratic primary. As I put it, it's really bad when you can't keep the other guy's percentage far away from human body temperature. <laughs> um, that's, you know, 
So, uh, you know, like, like the Democrats should be nervous because they've been hearing from the Biden campaign. Don't worry. This is going to turn it around. We're doing our whole messaging on Bidenomics. Oh, wow. Look at the stock market. Oh, wow. Look at the unemployment rate. Look at the job creation. Trust me. People are going to come around on this. They're not coming around on this because it's actually not an issue with the economy. Although I think Bidenomics, you know, could be worse. It really comes down. The problem is Joe Biden. The problem is that he's 81 years old and he looks like he's, you know, older than Dana Carvey's old grumpy old man character. He is, you know, like if the problem is the guy, the dogs don't want to buy the dog food. That's the dynamic here. And there's no window dressing. You can't hide it by keeping him away from the Super Bowl interview. You can't hide it by not having him do a national dress when we start bombing Iranian proxies. Sooner or later, he's going to have to go out there and he's going to start referring to Mitterrand and stuff like that. It's just, this is the problem. And if, you know, the, the argument is, don't trust us. The country dislikes Trump enough and they're going to be motivated enough by abortion that we're going to be fine and we're going to get to 270 electoral votes. That strikes me. I, I can't, that could happen, but I would not want to bet my mortgage on that. And I just have this, this sneaking feeling. If you're a Democrat and you feel like you're not getting a straight line from the Biden team, you're correct. You're not getting a straight line from the Biden team. David Axelrod has been sounding the alarm on this for a long time. And that guy knows a thing or two about winning presidential elections. Mm -hmm. He said he had the exact same talk with Biden. I'm sorry, the same talk with uh, Obama in 2011. He said, you're on path to lose. You totally have to turn this around. You can't just put one or two lines in a, in a, uh, in a, your stump speech and think it's going to improve these, these things. Yeah. I mean, they, they, but, they, you know, really, and Obama, listen. He really needs to do something, um, or, or several things surprising. Like, you know, going back to the border, it was like, okay, th this deal fell through. You know, I, I really wanted it because border, border security really matters to me. And I, I've been distressed at what's, what's happening at the border. So you know what, uh, Governor Abbott, I want to have a meeting with you. We're going to talk about how, how we get shipping containers up, you know, all across Texas on an expedited basis, and we'll help you string up the barbed wire. You know, something like that. But instead, they're going to try to grind it out, which very well might work, which goes to the exit question, which I'll ask you first Noah Rothman, percentage odds that Joe Biden is reelected from zero is not going to happen. One hundred percent, it's a lock. Uh, I still think it's better than even odds, <clears throat> but not much more better than even. Um, it's like fifty-two or something in there. Yeah, something along those lines, because we're going to see the most negative campaign we have ever seen since you know, the the turn of the nineteenth century. Now, that's the only path. These. Two people are so profoundly disliked, their negatives are so baked in that all they can count on is negative partisanship. So, but I do think that the eight ball is still very much behind, uh, or Donald Trump is still behind the eight ball just because of the fact that he is going to dominate the campaign mm -hmm. in ways that Joe Biden won't. And he'll be hoping that that high profile will be as much negative as, pos as positive. He's going to recede into the, into the scenery and let Donald Trump take take all the flack. And with all these criminal trials, if they materialize, that's a, a healthy bet. But you, mm -hmm. as you said in the, you know, in the beginning there, you don't know how those are going to play out, if they play out at all. Phil? So. Well, I'm going to give sort of it, it, Biden about a 49% chance. However, I think that the um, there's a 1% or 2% chance that it's somebody other than Trump or Biden. Okay. So it's like, oh, so you're doing like 49, 49, two yeah. or something like that? Yeah, something like that, 49, 49. All right, I like it. It's creative. So we got a, a 52 and a 49 on the board, Jim. 48.1, because, you know, the, the Biden message for the next, the rest of the year is going to be to reminding people why they don't like Trump. 
And that'll go far. That that you know, people will remember. People will remember January sixth. They'll remember all the bombast. They'll remember the circus and the chaos and all that kind of stuff. But in the the problem is you have to balance. And if if, if the moment could be if Biden could be frozen as he is now for the next 10, 11 months, I guess I guess probably nine months now, um, that he might be able to eat. In other words, if of Mortis sets in. <laughs> well, I mean, look, you know, between that and the body temperature, you notice there's all these metaphors. You know? um, Biden will have gaffes between now and November, and he will have moments where he will look ancient and with having one foot in the grave. And, and my suspicion is, is that between that and everything Americans don't like Trump, it's probably enough to get Trump to 270 electoral votes, but it's still very close. That's why I'm at, you know, 40. So you favor Trump? Yeah, but like, like Phil, I also think there's a possibility that, you know, no labels pulls some rabbit out of a hat and that you know, enough Americans are like, we, we don't want grumpy old men. We don't like these guys. We'll go with option C, whoever option C. Turns. So I'm still 50 50. I've been 50 50 for a long time with the gut instinct that'll be Trump, which is where I where I st- still still am with that. Let's let me do a quick plug for NR Plus. We need you to sign up for NR Plus, our digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Uh, lots of benefits. The most important one, it's a really valuable way to support our consequential journalism. So if you're not already a member, please consider signing up today, tomorrow, or the day after. If you really have to procrastinate, maybe the day after even that and join tens of thousands of your fellow national readers as a member of NR Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Noah, you've been uh, attending some kids' basketball games. My kids' basketball games. So uh, my wife coaches my oldest son's uh, basketball team, and they won over the weekend, and it was a shock because they'd never won. Not this year. What was the score? Not last year. It was huge. It was a kind of a blowout. I think it was like seven to 23. It was kind of close in the second quarter, <laughs> kind of close in the second quarter, but the team came back and they were, uh, they were charging. They were making their layups. Every, every kid had a, had a basket. Just about every kid had a basket, including 20, the kids that to seven? really perform all that well. Sorry. 23 to seven. You're saying 23 to seven. Close? Yes. High scoring game. Oh, no. uh, so they, they just scored 15 points less than uh, the Miami Hurricanes did against UVA's uh, defense last I night. I wish I'd have known that. Thirty-eight points. <laughs> I wish I'd have known that. I'd have jumped on the court and said, "Guys, you did better than Miami Heat." Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was fun to watch, and it's, it was nice because my um, some of my wife's lessons really shone through there, and uh, I felt awesome. good for her and good for them. Phil, you've been making soup. Been cr- crazy down there in the Klein household. You, you <laughs> yeah. shifted over from beef to soup, or maybe there's there's beef in the soup. I don't know. Yeah, um, it basically, um, it goes back to this um, old Jewish restaurant called Ratner's that many people might know from the uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan that had opened near the turn of the century and it it went out of business a few decades ago. But I remember it um, uh, from my childhood and particularly was um, into the soups and I, I tracked down some of the old recipes um, and I made potato soup and mushroom and barley. Um, a lot of the uh, soups um, have certain overlapping ingredients. So it was more efficient to just make multiple kinds at once. Um, so I've been just enjoying a lot of soup this week and it, it sort of brings me back to my childhood. 
And Jim, you've been watching the Netflix series, The Greatest Night of Pop? It's a documentary. Uh, Yes, it's just just an hour and 40 minutes. Um, It's about what it took to get all those big stars, I think 44 in total, into one studio in 1985 to record We Are the World. And I think everybody who's at least of that age remembers it. What you don't know was the enormous rigmarole of what it took to get all of those people. Quincy Jones had famously said, check your ego at the door. They apparently did not. Apparently they needed to have some sort of ego coat check system so people could get their egos at the end. Um, it, it was. It's hilarious. It's very revealing. It's pure Generation X nostalgia. You come away from this concluding that Lionel Richie is a fascinating and hilarious storyteller describing what it's like to try to write the song at Michael Jackson's house with Bubbles the Chimp jumping in and the snake crawling over him. And it sounds like an episode of Wild Kingdom. Uh, Quincy Jones really comes across as this masterful architect of the entire thing and kind of a pleasant surprise at all this. Huey Lewis comes across as the most relatable, level-headed, ordinary guy, superstar you'd ever want, who was every bit as wowed by being in that room with all those other big stars. It's hilarious. I urge everybody to watch it. So I went to another hockey game, a college hockey game this time, high-end college hockey game, and because seats were very cheap, ended up on the glass again, the way I was at the Florida Panthers game about a month ago. And I've concluded that hockey warm-ups are the best of any major sport warm-ups. They're almost better than than the game when when you're right there. These guys are so big and so fast. There's so much going on, and there's so much fun, and you get a chance to, uh, you know, you're, you're right there, so uh, some, some interaction with the players happens, which is kind of fun with that. It's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? All right. Uh, I'm going to go with Luther Ray Abel's Corner Post, Give Haley and RFK Jr. Secret Service Details Already. I've written a bit about this in the past, and I'm learning somewhat troublingly that Nikki Haley has asked for Secret Service protection after experiencing, quote, multiple issues, unquote. There's not elaboration on that, but you figure it's got to be threats. You figure it's got to be probably some nut job out there. Uh, Luther goes through all the various issues, points out that, you know, yes, it's expensive, but the consequence of, God forbid, somebody actually taking a shot at one of these candidates would be very, very serious. And uh, Joe Biden could very easily pick up the phone and kind of urge everyone to get the ball rolling on this. He has not. It makes Biden look very bad. And uh, anyway, just everyone should read Luther's point, corner post. It's just a really succinct, clear summary of everything related to this issue. Phil Klein, what's your pick? My pick is um, by Abigail Anthony. Um, she has a, a long, deeply reported piece on how the World Health Organization has put together this um panel to develop guidelines on trans medicine. However, it's overwhelmingly uh, comprised of gender ideologues. So it's sort of, um, you know, there are immense conflicts of interest, uh, which she details well. Mila. So I'm a little late to this, but uh, a piece in the magazine by John Bolton, America's arms control restraints no longer make sense. We talk a lot about the need for rearmament, but not the paradigmatic shift that is the predicate for rearmament. And uh, John goes into this. We're about to enter a period of multipolar deterrence with China and Russia, uh, which is more complicated than bipolar deterrence. And so he discusses that and also some of the unsavory challenges that will accompany the end of our life cycle extension programs for nuclear weapons, some of which were made in the 1960s. 
so he talks about ending these strategic limitations programs. And by the way, the non-binding comprehensive test ban treaty, which is going to make people really squeamish. But that icky feeling will pale in comparison to the sensation of existential dread that we will experience if we don't follow his recommendations. So my pick is Dominic Pino, our economics writer, largely economics writer, who's also a huge baseball guy. Global baseball is fun baseball on the Caribbean series that was played in Miami, and he was in attendance. Dominic knows a lot of base- about baseball and truly loves baseball, which makes it even more mystifying that he refuses to agree with me about the, the pitch clock, but he wrote a wonderful piece about these games, which sound like a lot of fun, except for the drums and the cowbells. The drums and the cowbells, I'm sure I, if I were there, I could have done without. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast, and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express or written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to How the World Works and ExpressVPN. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.